I think angels and de- I probably like angels and demons and Inferno just as like just at the same pitch as everybody else. Oh, uh, really? Because like I I think angels and demons is no joke. Like a good movie. It's it's a it's a I agree. It's kind of like a serial killer movie. It's it's got like fun like traps. It's like Saw meets yeah. like Seven. I love the theme of it. It's like my. It's like the theme that I would. I think it created like the the. I think it in, introduced our generation to self immolation, which was long overdue. Yeah, and look at the self immolation craze that rocked the nation throughout like, our junior, senior years of high school and into our, our freshman years of college. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been there without uh, Angels and Demons. Without a little director <laughs> named Ron. <laughs> a shitty little director. A shitty little baby named Ron. Uh huh. Uh, hey, uh-huh, does it stink in there? It sure does. Bennett, what movie are we talking about on this Lord's Day? Uh, you know, on this Christmas, Shane, we thought we'd talk about a great Christmas movie. Uh, one of the better movies I think we've ever discussed, and probably uh-huh. one of the more little seen. Uh, a movie that very, very few people had seen until uh, 2018, when uh, Kino Lorber restored it. Uh, had a run in some art house theaters uh, and got a re-release. Um, mm-hmm. It's playing on the Criterion channel now. And folks, this is the rare movie we'd uh, encourage you to see. I'm speaking, of course, of Bill Gunn's uh, made-for-TV masterpiece, Personal Problems. Ding, ding, ding. There's a volume one and a volume two. They're both good. Did you watch both of them? I did, yeah. I mean, I, I only ever heard about it described as, as a single entity. Uh, the whole Yeah, I mean, piece. even when you search it, it just says personal problems, and there's not really, like, a cover for part two. They just kind of treat it all as one thing, but supposedly Bill Gunn wanted it um, released as two volumes. Well, there's a fun way that it plays with the structure of uh, serialization on television, which I think we can maybe talk about. Um, Absolutely. So this movie was written by Ishmael Reed, who is a very interesting writer. He wrote a book called, not Hanky Panky, but it has a name like that. Let me go grab it. Folks, I'm going to vamp. Uh, you know, uh, maybe Shane will edit it out. Maybe, maybe I can just vamp here for a second. Ah, I want to suck your blood. Get it, get it. All right, folks. Thank you, thank you. Um, that's that's up there with the worst jokes I've ever made. I think I'm in a KMS after that one, folks. It's here speaking I am. Of the self-immolation phrase. Um, <laughs> um, Ishmael Reed. Speaking of the devil, sorry. Not uh, speaking of the devil. Ishmael Reed, not hanky panky. Wrote a book called Mumbo Jumbo. You can see how I would goof that. Um, but it, it's a very fun book that plays a lot with language. I'll read some of a uh, just a few sentences. Papa Labas Mumbo Jumbo Cathedral with a K is located at 119th, 136th Street. The dog at his heels, Papa Labas, climbs the steps of the townhouse. He moves from room to room. The dark tower room, the weary blues room, the groove bang and jive around room, the aswale room. In the groove bang and jive around room, people are rubber legging for dear life, bending over backwards to admit their loa. There's a guy, there's a, uh, the white guy's name. (laughs) 
And this is Hickle Von Van- Hinkle Von Vampton. Ah. And, um, interesting things happening here. He's a very, very interesting, uh, writer. It's too bad that he, uh, doesn't have more of, like, a, a notable career because, um, this movie that he wrote and worked on with Bill Gunn is so damn good. I feel like he didn't get the, um, the recognition he deserved. Yeah, and uh, this movie, it seems, sort of originated with him. Um, scripts that he'd written um, intended to be sort of what he called a meta soap opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure if that meant... I don't think that meant so much like a parody of the soap opera so much as like a modernist take on the soap opera, sort of using the... Um, and, and I mean modernist in the classic, you know, like Clem Greenberg sense of using the means of a medium to cri- to criticize the medium. Um, like, I think this is very much, we kind of talked about it a little bit off mic, and I think it'll be one of the themes of the conversation, how, like, this really, really kind of throws everything that sucks about TV kind of, like, in your face and mm. makes that kind of, like, artful. Mm-hmm. Um, and also does everything that, like, TV's unwilling to do. Mm-hmm. What sucks about TV? Um, well, the f- fact that it exists to, um sustain an audience week to week so it has to naturally have this like kind of unnatural pacing Mm. unless it's something like like twin peaks the return or like personal problems where like the whole thing is is kind of greenlit from the beginning to air as kind of one piece Mm -hmm. there's no opportunity to be at all exploratory there's no opportunity to let characters kind of like build themselves out in an organic way Mm -hmm. there's no opportunity to get into like sort of any sort of experimentation with with imagery or with i don't know the way you structure narratives um i don't know tv often looks perfunctory at the the time when this movie would have come out uh tv probably all looked i I don't know not probably not 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 quite as uh rough as personal problems look being one of the early video films but it would have all looked I don't know, probably just basically crappy and anonymous. Mm-hmm. And now all TV looks crappy and anonymous in the sense that it has this just kind of prestige gray and beige mm. sheen mm. to it. Mm. Everything that airs on HBO looks exactly the fucking same. And it probably <laughs> doesn't help that they're shot probably by like the same like three cinematographers. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm sure they have a lot of the same behind the scenes talent on a lot of these HBO shows, but it's done. It's done. The art form, no favors. If you even want to call, if you would call it an art form, I don't know if I would. I really think TV is down there with just the fucking like the dregs. If we were going to rank the art forms, right? I I think uh, Bill Gunn would agree with you. In an interview, someone asked like, "How do you, how do you see like the state of TV?" He's like, "It is extremely undeveloped in its nascent stages, and like he's like, I don't know, maybe later on it'll become more interesting, but right now it is just it's." very bad and i want to stop people from thinking that we got to that point with like breaking bad that like oh the like art form that he's like describing was like perfected with breaking bad i think breaking bad is the same exact formula from like the original days of television and like the like early popular tv shows like seinfeld or something just kind of like taken to its polished end i don't think that that is like a innovation on the form um just, uh, just taken into a more like quote-unquote cinematic genre right i think is what people are really observing yeah
this movie was shot on, I guess what, like, it's like a three-quarter something-o-matic camera, which is a camera that was used for, like, like news reports, because you could, I guess it, it was like a really early digital camera that you could get the footage out of really quickly. Oh, uh, tape. Yeah, it's tape, tape, three-quarter a digitized tape of some kind or like you didn't have to develop it maybe i don't know and uh it gives the whole movie a really strange quality that like is almost soap opera taking to the, like soap opera glow taken to the next level in that like there are little like phantoms of color all over the screen if they like if they're if they pan there's like a whole trail of a person's face going across the screen and at one point, really interestingly, the woman's, um, the main woman is walking through the hospital, and you can literally see through her body. Like, so- somehow you can see the background through her because she's walking. It's like trails of, like, the... I can't describe right it. Right through the door, probably. There's another shot like that, too. Later in the film, a character sits on a bed next to um, Johnny May, the main character's husband, mm-hmm. Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's light coming through the blinds in these kind of shafts, and they're shining through him in such a way that he almost looks like translucent. It sort of looks like he's a ghost. Right. It, it, it creates such a cool effect that is like really like nothing else I've ever seen in a movie. Absolutely. I mean, I think these cameras really were, yeah, just used for just kind of the most anonymous kind of workaday filmmaking at the time. I think they were used for, yeah, like news reports, probably like public access television. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, like, this movie did like did not exist for all intents and purposes in this form for the longest time because the tapes were like deteriorating. It, yes. it was shown probably like a couple of dozen times in the eighties on TV, um, on TV, and then they would tour it a little bit. Apparently, um, the tapes, uh, which is so wild to think of, like touring with <laughs> tapes instead of like a print <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, so I feel that like that tape, this f- camera. You can kind of sense that there is like an experimentation with the acting and like the the types of scenes that are able to be captured. I think like it really feels like people have been just given the opportunity to talk for a long time to shoot scenes extra long. Uh, yeah, J- Johnny May's first monologue really sort of feels as if it's almost like them do. It feels like something they're doing almost because they can. Mm-hmm. Um, with with this new, obviously not infinite, but so much closer to infinite uh, capacity at at their fingertips. Right. Um, and there's other instances in, in the film where they seem really kind of like high on the possibilities of the camera they're using. Mm-hmm. Right after um, uh, uh, Raymond's first um, performance ends, the one where Johnny May is crying, we uh-huh. cut to like this nature scene, and there's like a zoom out and a zoom in, and then like a zoom back in. And like, like the, the uh, backgrounds and foregrounds are coming like in and out of focus in this yeah, really yeah. interesting way. I, and it's definitely just him like fucking, fucking around with, with the, the camera. camera. Yeah. Just being like, hey, what can I do? It's shot by this guy, Robert Polidari, who is a really famous, that was very famous at the time. I think he's still with us, um, uh, still photographer. So this, this movie really represented kind of like a meeting of the minds um, of so many like people, uh, starting from Ishmael Reed's script and then getting like all of these people involved. Absolutely. Um, the woman who plays Johnny Mae Brown, uh, Verdame Smart uh, Grosvenor, uh, just passed away in 2018. Um, really, really like impressive uh, individual, um, well outside of um, any acting she did. It was like a cultural anthropologist for um, the Gullah community in like the Carolinas. 
um, uh, did a lot of like cultural food writing, uh, was also like a performer, poet. I think obviously like we see in the monologue, I think a lot of like her actual experience informs Johnny May's story. I mean, she wow. talks about growing up in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. She talks about being a poet. Um, I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about that monologue. I fucking love when they cut away to her reading the poetry. Oh my and God. And there's just kind of inexplicably in the background, this dude who I guess <laughs> is like a waiter. Cause at the end he like comes up like he's serving them just doing like judo moves doing, and like somersaults yeah. and shit. Doing like impossible karate in inexplicably <laughs> in this, in, a, in like, it doesn't work. And he's standing in such an odd, like they're taking up like two thirds of the frame and he's like, positioned um like right behind them in the one corner so there's this like empty third of the frame and then there's this th- frame where he's just constantly in motion like kicking yeah, just punching doing like, like, like barefoot oh, flips in the grass it's such well, a cool composition and such an inexplicable scene <laughs> yeah you could tell no one in the involved in the production it's interesting that robert polidori is like a still photographer like not even a filmmaker that like everybody involved in this is an artist in their own right, but this isn't really their main. Uh, like they haven't been working their entire life to like be on television or like do a mm-hmm. TV thing. Like Bill Gunn is an actor turned director, an actor of the stage. He was in um, the Sound and the Fury a production that won of a ton of a ton of awards back in the day, or maybe a movie. Um, and he was involved with in a lot of things on the stage. Like that was his go to. Um, and I, I, this was, he was touched on to do personal problems after Ganja and Hess initially, Ishmael Reed came up with the idea of like a television show and then Bill Gunn helped him out with it. But you could tell Ishmael Reed has never written a TV show. Bill Gunn has no experience directing it like a TV show. And n- these, all these actors, like as great as they are, don't really smack of like, tv characters they're all so unique and kind of idiosyncratic and the way this is shot like it so pleasantly doesn't make sense in the way you would want a tv show to like it doesn't even feel like a tv show to me just in the sense that like the the problems are kind of like every day that they go through is the only thing that you could maybe relate to like a television experience yeah no i mean um i think so much of tv acting is is playing to the rafters the same way like in 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 a similar way to like stage acting Mm. um and i think no one in this movie does anything like that i think the the style of acting we see basically from everybody it's and and it's obviously maybe maybe i'm saying this because the style of filmmaking is so similar similar but it's it's really only comparable to the style of filmmaking you see in like a john cassavetti's film mm. or like when it's when it's the broader ensemble scenes like a robert altman film mm. um, there's even some husbands ass antics toward the end i mean <laughs> in the it's so rare I, I mean one of the things that's 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 sort of groundbreaking about the movie um is the fact that it's it's really just, it's a look at black middle-class life. I think that's one of the things they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. That was not something you were seeing a lot of on TV. It's still not something you see a lot of on TV or in movies. At all. Um, you don't see, a, a, like, any black middle-class life. And you see very little, um, I don't know, true-to-reality middle-class life in general. I think um, I would compare it to um, A Woman Under the Influence in that respect. That it's about true like middle class people and there's nothing there's nothing opulent nor squalid about their existence mm-hmm. it's just sort of like regular this movie it really struck me a lot like a woman under the influence with the tragedy turned down a couple of notches right it's really a lot more like every day yeah and that actually makes me think about 
the way TV allows, even the shittiest TV allows for like inconsequential kind of conversations at lunch to happen. Um, I think of like, uh, uh, I, I'm just using Seinfeld as an example, how you can have a conversation of them at like the laundromat and it doesn't really have to tie into like this grand narrative of like Jerry being thwarted or, uh, though it probably will. You, you give, you give, you, there, there exists the opportunity for like, uh, kind of everyday situations and conversations to happen. I think of a movie like safe, which has, uh, a scene at a restaurant where two people are talking, but it has this massive consequence to it. And, they're not really having everyday conversation. It's like tied into this really like berserk narrative. Um, and in this, this m- one of my favorite scenes is three women sitting out on like a patio having a conversation that obviously has like a purpose in the movie to get the point across that that um, that Johnny May has a new boyfriend. But the like greatest part of that scene is seeing just three women who you can understand exactly why they would be friends, watching them talk to each other, <laughs> laughing, and like just having a conversation in a way that is that reveals things about all of them at the same time while not being about something greater. Um I I just I so love that you get that you you're able to watch this for a time an amount of time that doesn't make you feel like you're waiting for anything or you know, you know, this is kind of, it starts to stretch and you don't notice it getting long and, you know, like 16 minutes. Shifts. Yes. It's a fucking, that's a, that's a great sequence. One thing I'll say, uh, one, one last thing before we move on to um, that sequence, another one mm-hmm. I really, really enjoy, one of my favorites in the, in the film. Uh, another thing that really sucks about TV is that every event, every happening um, is both freighted with immense importance and then it's ultimately really frivolous. Like how often... Like, so often TV has the sort of, um, the world is about to end within the confines of this single episode right. uh, structure. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know, there's, there's something like Johnny May having a new boyfriend. It's basically the goal of the conversation for, for the other two women, like finding that out. But yeah. there's no urgency really getting there. Right, they take their right. sweet time getting there. They even say that. They're like, I'll sit here all fucking day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes. The only things I don't like about that scene is we get a couple like cuts away to like other people in the restaurant, and it's like almost as if to suggest other people are like, oh god, these women, but not really. And I, I, f- I wish we just sat with the women the entire time. We get a shot of like a, a Christopher Moltisanti looking uh, busboy waiter. Yeah. yeah. The, I get the sense that um, I had the sense there that there are these kind of onlooking whites that like don't really understand the like nature of this conversation. And it did. That's, that's how I kind of viewed it because those are some of the f- few white people in the movie. The only ones. Yeah. Um, that's actually a really good point. Uh, uh, I, um, no, you actually, you bring up a good point. I take it back. Those shots are essential because I think we're, we're so not used to seeing white people as outsiders in true in movies yeah. within, within sequences, within entire films, within mm-hmm. shots, even. And they're very much on the outside of this. Uh, they're very much on the outside of this conversation. They're at the kind of fringes of the frame, and we don't learn anything about them. They're like really outsiders to what we're looking in on, which is again mm. like a subversion of what you're used to seeing on TV. Yeah, absolutely. I found, to be honest, the first time I watched this movie, that that scene of them talking, these three black women talking, um, 
it was completely new to me seeing black women speak the way that they would to each other and in a movie that is for an audience um like feeling like i'm watching a conversation how these people would talk to each other and not in order to make something clear to an audience um like are you in the, am i just like this uh this hopeless outsider being like wow black women or did you get a similar sense um I get that sense in the sense that I, it's 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 rare that you see conversations like that of any sort on film. Again, I think the the sort of filmmakers who do them are sort of few and far between. It's the micro budget filmmakers you like. It's your John Cassavetes and your Mike Lee, and I, I obviously my blind spots when it comes to film going and and life in general are innumerable. But I've never come <laughs> across a black filmmaker who um, had this sort of observational style that Bill mm, Gunn has. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, at watching um, three women with um, a shared history uh, and uh, who are obviously facing sort of a crucial point, um, her one friend, uh, who we find out also works at the hospital, is, is moving back down south. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're interested in finding out about Johnny May's boyfriend. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Watching that whole that, that narrative take its time playing out, um, watching them deliver dialogue that's not at all expository. Um, it, it's so rare that you see that at all on film. And yeah, it's exceedingly rare that it would be, I don't know, three black women who are friends. Mm-hmm. Bill, Bill Gunn counts on you to kind of figure your, more yourself within the conversation, a conversation that's obviously well underway. Mm-hmm. Soon we meet Sam Wayman, who's us with our, his wonderful music. Oh, that seems so good. Hope you never say goodbye. You always say hello I hope this day will never end I hope you never go away Cause if you leave me my world Come crashing down on me See, I might be free, but then my life would be lonely. If you leave me, my world come crashing down, down on me. Basically performs the whole song. You should sing it at the end. Yeah. I hope you always say. Uh, sure, I'll sing it at the end. I'll <laughs> sing it at the dang beginning. Uh, he is the brother to Nina Simone. Nina Simone. Thank you. Yeah, and um, I don't know if he runs his own SoundCloud account. He once commented on an episode of Real Rap. Hey. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, Sam Wayman, we'd love to have you on if you're if you're out there listening. Uh, you are a rock star, superstar, and a movie star and a rock star. He fucking lights up the stage in this movie. Good lord, Absolutely. that first performance with the crowd. Uh-huh. My man, crowd work <laughs> like that. Good lord, <laughs> his full white suit. He's got great outfits in this movie as well, and I have a feeling they were his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't get. I don't know. I have a feeling that this movie was not. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a feeling that at least the, he would want like characters to have a say in what they were wearing. Yeah, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. actors rather to have a say in what they were wearing. Made on a budget of forty thousand dollars, so I can't imagine Damn. they were really going out. And, yeah, doing extensive wardrobe buys. What is the? Uh, so, oh, the uh, the scene when she's reciting the poem. She she recites a an amazing poem. Just a great piece of work on its own i don't know if ishmael reed wrote that or if she wrote that yeah i don't know i guess i would i would believe either uh, yeah I, I would um i guess i i could see ishmael reed writing in the script like reads a poem or something right uh, knowing right. that she was like a poet in her own right i could see her sort of you oh know, she was it must be hers probably. then i think i mean I, I assume that was on the she's a multi-hyphenate for mm-hmm. sure um she was like a broadcaster on npr um so we see that scene at the beginning of her reading the poem, and then we come back to it later and get kind of another perspective on it um, again, which is interesting that he, in this, quote, TV episode, he plays the same scenes, like, twice. Um, it seems like with the editing, they were, like, there there must have been a lot of footage that they were just kind of playing around with how they were going to put it together, because a lot of the stuff doesn't really need to be in a certain order and it seems intentionally out of order um in uh in that like there are these transitions that kind of make sense a little bit don't like even in part two there's like some expository stuff at the beginning where it's like we don't we probably didn't need to like get caught up on this i'm still here for just like the conversations that happen well see i think so I mean, at the beginning of part two, they do basically like a previously on, yeah, and we yeah. realize that everything we saw in part one that we thought was perhaps happening in a sequence, but where we were getting these like subtle hints that maybe events were happening out of order, characters like saying things that like didn't quite make sense. We find out that it all happened in this like wild order. Um, yeah, I don't know what like it, it, the the intention behind what the specific order they end up putting it in um, in part one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's if it's nothing but a troll, I think it's a, a very, very funny troll to do like a previously on and have it just completely like upset your entire understanding of what you just saw, or, yeah. or at least make you question if it if it has upset your entire understanding of what you just saw. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. There's kind of a there's a Mad Men episode one ish reveal when we find out Johnny May is married. Um, oh, absolutely! Well, yeah. into part one, uh-huh. like we have uh-huh. we know that she's seeing Raymond. We have no idea about the rest of her life other than that she works in this hospital. Um, <laughs> and basically, she, uh, yeah, I don't know. She, we see her waking a guy up uh, who is there. no. We see a guy waking up as she's coming in, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Her husband, uh, Charles Brown, uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Brown. Uh, they never. Nobody makes that joke. I guess that's decidedly a joke a white guy like me would make. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you're like that little cartoon. Ah, you're like that bald kid. <laughs> Him just like eyeing you through his sunglasses. Um. Yeah, and they have a really just sort of like terse exchange at the bathroom sink 
Oh, I guess before before we move on to mm-hmm. the hilarious sort of like TV reveal, and again, I think that's them uh, upsetting kind of like TV conventions of like a, a happy married family. Like, right, obviously, yeah. very very few TV shows at that time in the mainstream, I think, would have shown you any sort of like any sort of person involved in extramarital stuff, unless it was you know a morality tale where they were gonna like come crying. Right. Back to, if J- Jackie Gleason would have you know come back crying to uh, what was his wife on the show Rose. Uh, anyway, um, you know what I mean. His shithead wife is what you his, meant to say. <laughs> what did Archie Bunker call his wife? Dingbat. Yeah, Archie Bunker would have come uh, crying back to uh, you know his wife. But, right. Um, but, but before that, we have a scene kind of backstage at um, uh, Raymond's performance. <laughs> um, a, As Raymond uh, is just slaying it on the e just piano, completely k- killing just this, bringing crowd. down the house. Not only in the show, but the probably the real audience of whatever that show was. I was, I was like, I had such a fucking smile on my face. I was like, this scene rules. I texted yeah, yeah. you about it. I was like, wow, this first performance from Nina Simone's brother rules. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, backstage, well, literally, he's making a crowd of like twenty people sound like two hundred people. Uh, <laughs> such a fucking like, just bringing the goddamn house down. Yeah. We have back scene, uh, back, backstage, this huge kind of like Altman esque ensemble of people. Uh-huh. Uh, like 20 people collected backstage including um including johnny may including her friend that we've met earlier including um ishmael reed playing a character uh-huh. who is in a fight with this sort of this long hair this like a white, white radical type. yeah <laughs> white radical um kind of like hair down to his ass mm-hmm. kind of like frank zappa mustache yeah who's giving who's giving ishmael reed's character who is he ever named i'm, I'm not sure Ishmael Reed is is his name. He's billed as manager of Doggy Diner, right? Which he talks about. He's a small business owner, yeah. <laughs> which he's very yeah. proud of. Um, yeah. uh, the white radical is lecturing him, giving him a very like you people, um, basically oh, yeah. kind of telling him how he should vote as a black man, and this right. guy's really not having it. And it becomes clear again through dialogue, like they let this scene go on for like minutes and minutes, and we're really uh-huh. like. God, this white guy sucks. Yeah, Jesus Christ. He's like, what, did, what did Ishmael Reed say? <laughs> he's like, the white guy's saying shit like, I I gave up my privilege so I could be align myself with a member of the working class so I could see the <laughs> world. And you people, he's you like... People and everyone, everyone erupts the whole room. When he yeah, the, 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 the whole room, which is the basically the entire cast of the movie, is like, what the uh, fuck are you saying? He's the only white guy in the room. And he's like staring directly in the into the camera, sweating. That guy's uh-huh. name's Kip Hanrahan. He's a music producer, uh-huh. and apparently from, he was notable in his own right. Yeah, I think you know. Honestly, I I thought that this scene actually happened, and I was like, maybe Ishmael Reed is like really conservative. <laughs> At one point, he says, "I voted for Ronald Reagan," and everyone in the room is just like, "What the fuck?" Everyone are in the room talking? gets like silent for a second. But what's so funny is that like the fucking white guy has already lost the room so egregiously yeah, that the conversation just keeps going, and they keep just counting <laughs> on him. <laughs> As he just yeah. doubles down on like, He's getting I so gave up hot. my privilege. I've risked my life. I've put my yeah. life on the line. I think he talks about like, I've gone to South America. I've gone to, to Africa. To fight in wars. Yeah, which I think is true. Like, he, I think he actually did that. Which this and is then the real at guy? The, I think, is yeah. He playing and like himself? I, I don't know. I feel like Ishmael Reed might, might have been playing a character and that guy was just like, I'm gonna fucking explode. You black people don't understand like what, like what you're doing to yourself. He's like, telling them how they should act as black people 
um, which is just wonderful. And uh, then he gets so angry that he stands up and is leaving the room after literally everyone is throwing their hands up, being like, get the fuck get out the of here. Fuck out. And he looks at the camera. I don't know if you saw this. And he goes, cut, like really <laughs> angrily. And then the, you never see it again. Oh, I didn't notice if he said uh, cut. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, he, maybe it was for real. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I mean, for real. it was just goading him. <laughs> There's pictures um, of the whole crew, and that guy is there, like standing with Ishmael Reed, and everyone looks like pretty fine. Um, yeah, well, but it's a fun fourth wall breaking. Another way to sort of break with the conventions of TV. Yeah, I mean, he... Ishmael Reed's a great troll throughout the scene, oh. talking about how he owns the diner. Like, what are you? What are you? Am I supposed to be demonized because I make money as a small business owner? Right, right. And uh, uh, t- Ishmael Reed talks about like getting the hippies off the street, like cleaning it up. Cut your um, hair and shit. Oh, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, Ishmael Reed is like, I feel like he, if he were, if he w- were a white person, he would have become so much more famous and like a Norman Mailer type figure of like, uh, yeah, I, that was kind of the story orientation and a lot of the people behind the scenes here. I mean, Bill Gunn, we, we were talking a little bit of, uh, I think off mic about his his first film. He he was only like the third black director to direct something in the Hollywood system, oh, wow. and it just completely erased. Never got like a theatrical release. Mm. Uh, Ganjin has buried this, obviously buried, obviously a uh, Titanic talent uh, like Ishmael Reed, just sort of buried. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was good to learn that uh, some of the people involved with this very much sort of got their due. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that uh, he didn't work with anybody. He didn't like working with people for the first time on set. And it, I, I think you could tell in this that he was very much kind of friends with all the people in this movie before. I think that they, he had creative relationships with a lot of the people um, in this movie, which makes sense that he would kind of cross paths with, Ver- with Vertime Grosvenor um, previously, just because it seems like they would be doing kind of similar work in like the high art world um, as just really powerful black artists. Um, yeah, now that, I mean, it's certainly, I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that there was extensive um, uh, rehearsals. I know that they shot basically a rough version of this that I've heard is kind of like amateurish. Not everybody, I don't think Robert Polidari was involved yet. I've heard it's really mm-hmm. kind of like indifferently framed mm-hmm. um, and not as good. But I know that they, so that, that the fact, the existence of that leads me to believe that there was definitely sort of um, a lot of time for everybody to sort of um, kind of live in the characters um, you know, bring parts of themselves where necessary. But after that um, kind of near fist fight between Ishmael Reed and mm-hmm. um, the the film's lo- one loan, is he the only white guy with a speaking part in the movie? Yeah, he must be. I think he must be. <laughs> um, uh, the, we then we then go to um, this this kind of again near confrontation between Johnny May and her husband, uh, mm-hmm. her husband Charles. Um, he he's really not having it uh, at the sink in the morning, and then he tells her to go make him sunny side up eggs. And there's this great scene where they're talking, and she's in the kitchen preparing breakfast, and he's sitting at the uh, kitchen table, and this like cacophonous sound of like recording equipment and um, like scraping like knives and like whisks and shit makes it yeah. just one of the some of the roughest audio you're gonna oh, hear. Oh, absolutely! A, when she's whipping the eggs great. in that plastic bowl, yeah. <laughs> It just adds like a whole other dimension to the whole scene, to the tension too. Because mm, um, obviously mm. it didn't it didn't sound like that to them, although there were probably, I mean, the sound, I, I'm sure all the breakfast sounds were probably annoying for, I don't know, at least she's probably hungover if he's not. 
Um, I don't know where he's. Oh, he's supposed to have been watching the Guns of Navarone. Uh, all night. <laughs> I um, watch it every year. One of the hints that things are going out of order is like uh, earlier on. I think or later on, somebody mentions Guns of Navarone is going to be on that night or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, this obsession with Guns of Navarone. But um, it's, it's mentioned it's, like uh, three times. Yeah, it's really great. Like the way the way a filmmaker might like put you in a he- the, the headspace of a character by having like sound seem cacophonous, like. He does like kind of like unintentionally through this like the, the, he's like using the the shoddiness of the, the recording capabilities of these cameras to its like utmost effect and it's fucking absolutely great. and as I noted to you she clearly <laughs> prepares scrambled eggs and then he eats scrambled <laughs> eggs and it seems like he would he would have noted that he would be the guy to tell you he didn't want that scrambled eggs he was I think he. Charles Brown's my favorite character. Just very understated, kind of the way he plays it. Mm-hmm. But very so clearly angry. full of rage. <laughs> yeah, just not under the surface rage. Uh-huh. Just completely above above water rage. Because mm-hmm. as he's like eating breakfast, she tells him that uh, her uh, brother, her stepbrother Bubba, and his estranged, now unestranged wife are coming to live with them indefinitely because yeah. they're on the run for writing bad checks yeah and she he's like she she brings this up as like yeah my brother's gonna be coming up he's like what are you talking about he's like yeah you know wrote some right wrote some what? bad checks a kid got taken by child services you know how it goes he's like no i don't know how no, it goes please describe <laughs> to me what you're talking about you know they're gonna be here they're gonna be coming up like in this house, yeah, they're gonna be here. He's like, you know, he's like, when are they gonna be here? He's like, I don't know, tonight, don't know, tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> I uh, that, yeah, that that was great, and that to me seemed like a scene that was like improv in like a very in, in the best way. And it is, yeah. it's like a fun way that they're again playing on these like soap opera conventions. Like, what a weird turn of events. Like, uh oh, <laughs> like the house is full of people because of uh. Oh, I don't know. They're writing bad checks, and their kid is in some sort of home, and uh... they have to buy the kid back. And oh, yeah, boy, I, I, something you'd never want to hear, and she's telling it to the most angry man who populates this movie. <laughs> Clearly, like a lid about to come off the pot. <laughs> and uh, the, I, I like that scene how she's kind of serving him angrily, but then also playing. Then she has to like dance around this. Um, you know this this uh conversation of like asking him for something but also kind of telling him how things are uh it's a it's a it's a unique kind of relationship i mean they we find out later they're both cheating on each other so it's kind of like neither of them are really involved in this relationship so the the relationship that you do see is this like estranged like almost like working together to just like be near one another there's no like conceit that like they're in love or anything it's just uh-huh. like we're just doing this as because we live together but there is such that lived in familiarity mm-hmm. um this sort of like shorthand with which they speak with one another yeah yeah uh, and the sort of ease with which they can sort of occupy the same room although another thing the movie does so well oh also um Charles's elderly father lives with them because he's oh, also gotten in some I, sort of he's trouble. He's my favorite. He's my uh, favorite. he's a great character. I think Bubba might be my favorite character. He's such a fucking clown. <laughs> Is Bubba the uh, dad? Her brother, uh, Johnny oh, May's right. brother, <laughs> dresses like clown. the dad. They both wear like straw hats and yes. like kind of like fl- like flamboyantly colored jackets. Uh-huh, oftentimes, uh-huh. 
the dad, it, there, there was one scene when we were introduced to the dad where he's walking up to a random guy in the street. He's like, that's my man. Walks up to him. He's like, how's it going, man? Like, we have no idea what the relationship is. I think the dad had improv that scene, like, so convincingly that, like, he just walks through the people who are shooting him, like, th- right through the ca- the camera person. And it, there's a scene where the cameraman turns around showing the entire crew of the movie standing behind the camera as the dad just continues walking down the street and Bill Gunn is standing there kind of looking at the camera smiling like I think you could tell that he had just like really up like played up this character in a way that nobody was expecting in that initial introduction um another really great scene we get in part one um and it's a callback to a scene we see a snippet of during um Johnny May's opening monologue is when she is at kind of intake at the hospital she works at for somebody. Now, doesn't she say when she's referring to him that he was coming in with gunshot wounds? She says, like, she's seen kids with gunshot wounds. Maybe she's talking about somebody else. I feel like it was maybe played both ways in that, like, this kid either, like, he ends up having, like, appendicitis, but she's talking about something that seems like she's talking about him, about, like, a young kid. Maybe she's talking about somebody else. But she's like, no, he was from my hometown. Like, he knew how to handle pain, like this bullet wound. And that guy was from South Carolina. So I think it was like a little discon- discontinuous because it felt like it was kind of both ways, like that he had. Um, or I don't know. I mean, because she says to his uncle, like, you don't know, maybe it's appendicitis. And I don't know, maybe right, his uncle's right, like, right, right. I don't know, out of it or something. Or, or they're trying to keep it a secret from him and like playing it off. But uh, there's a scene that is is really great. Um, a lot. There's a lot going on in that scene. It's a scene that uses boredom very, very effectively and uses duration very, very effectively. Mm. What's more, what's more boring? What's more interminable than um, intake in an institution? Than mm-hmm. you know, bureau- bureaucratic paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing we get in that scene, we, we, what we get in that scene is just the inherent like inhumanity of of the system of the bureaucracy. Like how mm-hmm. long they're, how many hoops they're making somebody who is like visibly suffering dying jump through, <laughs> yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, literally because they have no choice. Um, what yeah. we also see too, and I was so surprised to learn that that's her friend Della, the one who's moving back down south behind the glass yeah, later in the yeah, scene, yeah. because I thought something they do so deftly and without putting so fine a point on it in the scene is create this sort of divide between Johnny May, the nurse, and Della, sort of working mm-hmm. in an administrative position. There's a certain sense of like superiority behind the glass. I mean, very yeah. much so, right? She knows she can take her time. I mean, she knows she doesn't have to get her hand dirty. Um, I don't know. That the, scene goes on for forever. Um, yeah. Really, kind of makes you sit there in in the pain. Um, very effective. You, you can't really tell. Like, is Della like taking her time with, with this paperwork? I there is one instance where Johnny May looks to Della and is like. Tell gives her <laughs> this really brief glance of like come on now like you get this sense that like okay like there is a little bit of urgency here like, <laughs> like you really don't have to do it this long but it's amazing that we sit with that scene for the entire time and it's not cut for like a comedic effect of like and no. what's your birthday and what's your best friend's birthday and like we just watch it all happen it's like a wiseman then, movie yeah yeah it exa- it feels exactly yeah. like that um, um the uh and then, and it's interesting you bring up, I didn't think about like how, you know, the system ne- necessitates this. I just was like, well, you know, that's how it is. That's how it's got to be. But it definitely points out like 
this is a place where people are dying and you have to do this inane paperwork. And then also it shows Verda May being like this extremely sympathetic and like comforting person in a time when she doesn't really have to even be there with these people. And the system right. is so horrible to the people that it has to take care of. Um, and she ends up having to fill in all the cracks of like humanity for this like cinder block building with like green weird fucking chairs and horrible lighting like she is Ooh. there standing by people when she doesn't really have to be and you could just see how she gives herself up to like these people in her job which kind of makes you really sit with her in a different way in the other scenes when she's like talking to um raymond and talking to her husband you really see that she's like you know she doesn't really have time to come home and be anybody's best friend when she's doing that all day at work Right. Uh, it's a great character sequence for her in which she has like two lines of dialogue, which are like mm-hmm. whispered under her breath, barely audible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a scene that's further complicated by the fact that we've been made to like Della already. I think Della is like hilarious in that sequence where they're. Yeah, lunch. totally, totally. It makes it tough knowing that that's Della behind the glass. This is like someone. And then it and it becomes so interesting knowing that these were like different days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you kind of like you're torn between like, well, like this is. like this is these people's job they have no control over it you can't get angry at her like it's a and and even the guy who's complaining like are you serious like the nurse is johnny may is like this it has to happen like be cool and he like continues kind of complaining but only like less so like he is uh, he is experiencing the complication of like okay i know we have to check him in but my friend is dying and he's the only one really advocating and he does this he like gets told that he shouldn't complain as much and he like keeps complaining but takes it down a notch like he does this really interesting acting thing that like you can almost not point out he's shaking his friend and they're like please don't shake him and he doesn't stop shaking him but he like slows down his shaking and like moves his arm a little bit like he's still kind of enforcing himself in this situation where like he doesn't really have a choice and he really wants to help his friend. I I can't really explain that. You'd have to I guess watch it. Uh no, it's it's a it's a great sequence and then I think the last one in part 1 is when she uh kind of gets everybody together for sort of a family meeting. Oh. Just fucking yells at everybody again for like 10 minutes. It's so yeah. good. And Bubba's wife keeps trying to speak up and she keeps telling her, like, bitch, shut the fuck shut up. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, that was wild. That's a truly wild scene. Um, and it turns out it was like the first thing that happened in everything that we've seen, basically. <laughs> There's an interesting way in that, like, you know, like you said, it's it's not like like movies now about like Hollywood movies about black families are that come out today are like decades behind this movie that like doesn't treat them living in a New York apartment as like bottom of the shit heap poor, uh, well, nor you know, are like, they like movie characters now or sitcom characters that are sort of inexplicably living in like these palatial apartments. It's like right. a, it's a firmly regular existence, the likes of which you don't normally see on screen. Yeah, yeah. And their life, small. I think that Johnny May's life is obviously very hard, but we don't ever get the sense that she's like suffering all the time. I think that the point that is created when she talks to um, 
Raymond is like this is a person who despite having to work like probably 12 hours a day in a horrible hospital that's about to get shut down still has all of this like love and personality inside her that she like needs to have expressed she's obviously just a person that is like a bottomless well of like compassion and and poetry and interest and a lot of this movie kind of gets across this like this centered place that each character comes from despite being like frustrated even the angry husband has this kind of like spirit about him that like help like he loves his dad he's housing his father and um like loves he has like Navarone. a he's really into guns of navarone he watches <laughs> it every year i mean there's like a way in which regular conversations come across as like almost like this spiritual connection made between people especially with raymond he's like the character that seems to come from outside and really unlocks this uh this side of um johnny may that she hasn't been able to experience it's, i think like the way that the camera is and then this haziness and this kind of dreamy quality, it like amps up this idea that Johnny May specifically is this really special person that is kind of unrecognized in her world. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think the script or the direction puts too fine a point on it. I think I think any of that to be read into the film speaks to the strength of um Verta May Smart uh Grosvenor's performance. And that strange kind of ethereal quality quality to the photography. I mean, I think mm. one of the things mm. that's so great about the film is just how kind of everyday it is. Mm. And that it finds that level of poetry, I think, is just a testament to all of the fact that all of the parts are, are, are working so well together. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting the way they shoot, the way Polidori shoots the, like, outdoor kind of park scenes in contrast to the indoor places, he doesn't seem too interested in, like, the spaces inside. He'll give, like, establishing shots, but mostly focus on the people within them. But once we get outside, there are, like, tracking shots of just, like, the water, um, people kind of existing at, like, a distance from each other, like, when they're talking over the water to each other, like, how you doing? I feel good. Uh, yeah, again, I think he's so interested with just sort of capturing everything there is to be captured with the new mm-hmm. type of camera. Like, I think water looks so incredible on these cameras. Oh, yeah. It's, like, disappearing constantly. It's such a weird look. Um, yeah. like he obviously is so interested in, like, the leaves. Um, yeah, the shots when they're both outside on kind of the two different shores, so, so, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you want to talk about part two, I mean, part two mostly focuses about, or focuses on, rather... The uh, aftermath of the death of uh, Charles Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, they call him found... Father Brown, so I, I don't know. I guess I figured yeah, his name was Father also Charles. Brown. But, um... I found that, like, I think that uh, indoor scene in at when she, the one woman was blaming her for not taking care of the husband, I was a little less convinced of the, like, um, the kind of dire nature of it it did feel kind of like staged in a way um but you know still in the vein of like what we had experienced up to that point and uh i did find it more interesting when we got into conversations with the men later on and at that cocktail party 
the more husbandsy shit. Yeah, yeah. When they're at the bar, yeah. walking around. I guess before we get the wake, yeah, we get sort of we get a sequence at a cocktail party, or as Raymond calls it, a cocktail sip, yeah. uh, which he says it's like a hundred times if he says yeah. once, and she yeah. keeps correcting. <laughs> um, like, well, you don't have to sip. Um. Uh. Yeah, what that's an odd scene. Like Raymond is having a conversation with this other woman who is saying like is talking about like she's talking in these really kind of like grandiose terms about how much she like loves his work. Mm-hmm. Um it's got this almost like deal with the devil sort of like overtone to it. <laughs> like she's speaking in this very like uh, hmm, you know, like at the end of the witch when he says like what's that like to live deliciously? Like it's very it's got that sort of uh, a vibe to it. it maybe it's because uh-huh. she's got the British accent and she's wearing those black gloves and she's got the horns. But yeah, I... there's some weird people in that in that cocktail party. Uh, Raymond gets like kind of he's like playing ladies man. Um, are we thinking of the same party? The one that like Bill Gunn himself is present at? Yeah, yeah. And that woman says like you you could have it all, but you got to end your relationship with Johnny May. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Johnny May overhears it and is sort of understandably incensed and Raymond's Raymond sort of goes from being like everybody's favorite guy like wow hey love this character why isn't this guy in every movie until right like, hey come on man yeah yeah he he get he like I guess his like musician kind of performer side is like makes him kind of a ladies man and a lot of people yeah, but... desire him and uh, yeah she sees that side and is like hell no I think once you learn to play the piano, you become physically incapable of not uh, philandering. Right, like right, it's just right. Sort of, you right. never know where the it's, hands are going to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your fingers become like just little old. little Martians that just <laughs> march around the city on their own. Uh, the I couldn't really tell you what the men say to each other when they're drinking. No, and that's the best part. I love that. There's just completely, yeah. like, so many... I, I was watching it with subtitles to try to pick some up, and so much of it just doesn't even get picked up. It's just a lot of, like, grunting. I did want to yeah. talk about one more scene at the wake, though. There's a hilarious uh-huh. bit where this woman that Johnny May has never seen before in her life walks in, <laughs> and Johnny May is clearly, like, so pissed and is doing, like, a just performance like, of putting on, lady. like, okay, I'm not pissed, but, like, I want her to know that, like, all right, clearly you've raised my eyebrows. Yeah. And she introduces her, Miss Baines, to to every single fucking person at the party she goes up uh miss baines miss baines miss baines, baines i guess like that's just see if maybe somebody anybody knows who the fuck she is and then she leaves right. like after two minutes offers her also in like an almost like jerry lewis uh J- jerry lewis uh uh fuck what's that movie called uh uh cracking up waitress type scene offers her like a hundred different drinks and like food items <laughs> and miss baines of course is like no no fine no yeah. good and then leaves and- uh, out of nowhere and just jenny may erupts with like i don't know who the fuck who she the fuck is. was that yeah she was like please to make all of your acquaintance and as soon as she leaves all the women are like please to make your fucking acquaintance and the men are like i thought she was a beautiful young lady it's i like, thought you were really rude <laughs> johnny may is like everyone's a beautiful everybody is a beautiful young lady to you uh so good and then they just go off fucking boozing it is very much out of husbands i almost wonder his husband's after this when his husband's husband's like 82 must be the same no uh uh husbands i thought was 70 no no it might be like who the fuck knows 
I don't know. This is the problem with having a zero research podcast, folks. That's uh, right. Now and then you find yourself out on the balls of your Just ass. Out on the balls. Oh, but all of their husbands all was nineteen seventy. Oh wow, I was way the fuck up. Why did it was eighty two? Is eighty two love streams? Maybe that's why I thought that. Yeah, um, probably. Oh, so yeah, maybe it is a response in some way to husbands. Then I mean, I oh oh, uh, you, Robert, you know what one of uh, Robert Polidari's um, before I forget uh, inspirations was. Tell me. the film? Maidstone. No, you're yeah, kidding. I'll send you the thing I read on the Metrograph website, yeah. Whoa, uh, yeah, yeah. this guy. Okay. Yeah. He might have been the only white man on set. <laughs> He's probably one of the very few people that have seen Maidstone and really clocked it as a potential inspiration. Right. I mean, this. <laughs> I feel like this movie kind of incorporates so many of our inspirations. Um, It's, it's really full of just um, kind of wild arguments. Um, that seem directionless, that that reveal new facets um, out of nowhere. I mean, mm-hmm. the the stuff at the wake is the most like conventional scene from a movie or an episode of television. But it's still, it just it finds what Cassavetes finds. It finds that sort of, and I hate to I hate to keep comparing it to Cassavetes. Right. It's reductive. Obviously, you know the the movie and Gunn's work succeeds obviously in its own merits. But it's it's a similar sort of a um, I, I don't know emotional resonance to what in the hands of lesser directors is always you know just kind of like histrionic and annoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Central Park movie, much like um, big time uh, Central Park, much movie. like um, Symbio in a way. Uh, the last sequence is is at Central Park. It ends kind of abruptly. I don't know what, what you thought about that. They're talking about uh, maybe taking a trip, or she's talking about maybe leaving New York. She's uh, back with um, with uh, Charles Brown in that sequence. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know if it was back at the beginning or what. Um, it kind of rounds out in a way that you wouldn't expect the movie to in getting the couple back together. Uh, it was a pretty touching scene. Charles Brown call he has a, you know, it doesn't, n- no one in this movie's, like, their internal, mo- like, way is not really ever described to you in a way that would satisfy uh, your, like, w- need to read these people's minds. Um, and it seems like Charles Brown kind of, like, has just a complex day where he, like, you know, things get kind of put into perspective for him, and I think he calls his, uh, his, um, what do you call that, a boudoir? What is a woman that you're, um, his mistress? And uh, he's like, hey, I, I just don't think we should... I think we should not see each other for a while. Oh, and his Gumar. <laughs> his Gumar, yeah. And uh, he doesn't, he, and she's obviously upset on the phone. You only get one side of the conversation. He hangs up, and then uh, he and uh, Johnny May are going on a nice stroll in Central Park. Seems like they're uh, doing well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say the closest we get to an inner monologue from anybody is those kind of long opening monologues, the really long one from, from Johnny May and the kind of shorter one from Charles. Um, but it's still not as illuminating as one wants it to be. If they're trying to really read a character's mind, I mean, Mm -hmm. Johnny May says the movie's title. She says something along the lines of, well, you know, I guess everybody has their personal problem, personal problem, sort of, uh, what a good name for a movie. It is a really good name for a movie. Or if they had made this into like a like a TV show or some sort of anthology, personal problems. Hey, we've all got them. Um, yeah. And then she also says at one point, it's sort of like maybe like the thesis of like it, it sort of sums up her existence within the movie. She says, "I'm not unhappy. I'm just not happy." 
Which is such a great line. <laughs> mm. You know, if any dog fucking white guy made this, he would have had like a twelve episode series. Bill Gunn is right. Said when he says, um, "You know, because I'm black, I have to do everything twice as I have to be as twice as talented as anybody else." and uh be twice as nice he's like if i'm on a plane i have to make sure i eat really properly so the guy next to me doesn't think i'm gonna eat him (laughs) which i mean he blows it out of the park on everything he's done i'm excited to see his movie stop exclamation point and see how he uh he just probably does it again um but it's a shame that there's not there's not more yeah there's just really um there's the uh the movie he wrote the landlord that uh, Hal Ashby ended up directing with uh, mm-hmm. Bo Bridges and Lee Grant. Um, this movie rules, folks. Buy the buy the keynote Blu-ray. So they keep putting out stuff like this. Keynote Lorber. What does that mean? It means like eyeball. Uh, I think it means like cinema eye or theater eye. Sounds lame as hell. Yeah, it's a dumb name. You know what, Keno Lorber? Fuck you, Keno Lorber. This is actually a hate. Kino yeah, Lorber. We're the anti Kino Lorber podcast. You know, Kino yeah, Lorber yeah. can. Bennett, what do we have come? That's that's a personal problem by Bill Gunn. It's, it's got to be an RR favorite. Bennett put it at number 16. Have no idea how he keeps his numbers in his head for the real rap. Uh, I just look brand. at that. I, I look at that ranking and I go, like, okay, is it better than this? Is it better than that? I feel like that's easier than Kick like just trying to give it a number. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have it What's between the... uh, Trafik and uh, the Heartbreak Kid, right? Uh, okay, okay. It's in that ballpark, I think. Who gives a fuck? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I, I'm kidding. I, I, I like ranking do. stuff. I know you do. I know. Um, what do we got next? Are we gonna? We should do. Uh, we'll do. We'll do a stop on the Patreon, which seems to have put a stop to Bill Gunn's film go, filmmaking career. Yes, although it does <laughs> steal that from me. It predates Ganjin Hess, but apparently they saw it and were just well. We're absolutely not releasing this. I don't know much about it, other than it sounds like it's about two couples going on a vacation to Puerto Rico and deciding to swing Ooh. Woo! and i'm You're not have talking to put about a... on the playground <laughs> oh bennett i wasn't i didn't think that you were as an adult i've got a different definition of swing listen kid when you get to be my age swinging is something you're gonna want to be doing uh very sexily <laughs> <Very sexually. laughs> that's that's a little sneak preview into my christmas movie sexy f- um sexy fuck sexy f hashtag percent sign um dollar sign asterisk i n christmas um, sexy fucking christmas for you dumbasses out there i'm sorry i'm getting a little you're getting a little, a little uh hot. A little salty over here yeah um, I, I guess after um, after rounding out Bill Gunn, I think we were talking about maybe doing another kind of father versus son uh, little miniseries with uh, Van Peebles, Van Peebles. The kid? Oh, oh Mario yeah. Mario I'd love to do Van Peebles, absolutely. And we'll have some special guests on there. Have yet to contact them, but I'm sure they're going to be very happy. I'm sure they're on. game. I'm sure they're game. We're just going to put it on the board. I'll put them down. I don't know. I mean, we, um, have a, we have a couple ways to, like, vamp if need be. Vampire. We could do the landlord. We could do, uh... Do-do-do-do-do. If 
turquoise green and marble gray lay swim lay i really shouldn't knock that poem <laughs> but i know that i could do i hope you never say goodbye I hope you always... Were you like me in that you watched the trailer to this movie like 400 times? I never saw it, no. Oh! Uh, I wouldn't Bennett, you gotta watch it. Sure. Oh, I, I will. Does it just play that whole song? Basically? Great I trailer. love trailers that, that have songs that I'll just watch it's a that, of times. Him playing that song and it's like diegetic and that you see him playing it and then it's all different scenes from the movie threaded through Bennett. It's gonna make you shed a tear. And people have reached out to Sam Wayman, banging down his door. What the fuck is the name of that song? And, I, and he, I think he released a version of it. Um, it's on SoundCloud now. Oh, it's called, I have to listen. Uh, it's not as good as the version in the movie. I'm gonna tell you. Well, maybe it just makes it better that you got John Mayer shedding younger. a tear. Yeah. All right. Until next time, folks. Uh, that's a real wrap. Bye bye.